You're about to hear the 3CR Community Radio podcast of In Psychedelia. For more information on this show, head to 3cr.org.au and follow the links to the In Psychedelia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook, Twitter, or find us on our website. Good afternoon. It is in Psychedelia on 3CR. Thank you to Freedom of Species. They'll be back from 1 o'clock next week on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on digital and also streaming live at 3cr.org.au. This is in Psychedelia. We are a, uh, a show that focuses on the intersection of psychoactive drugs and society at all the uh, points of intersection from academia to public policy, uh, from uh, from the, the, the user and their individual stories to the broader uh, community implications. Uh, and we focus uh, on the philosophy of harm reduction. And uh, harm reduction aims to reduce the uh, overall uh, negative health consequences and social consequences of drugs, uh, both illicit and illicit, um, without necessarily reducing consumption. Ash joins me today on the program, uh, regular in psychedelia contributor. Welcome, Ash. Ah, oh, g'day, folks. Uh, how's your week been? Oh, uh, yeah, really good. Good, good. Any uh, anything exciting this week? Um, uh, the novel psychoactive substances conference was yes. just a little bit exciting. Followed up by ABC TV's uh, forum Australia on Drugs. Yes, yes, on uh, ABC Two and also available on uh, iView at the moment because I watched it a bit later in the week and then live tweeted it from iView. Uh, on yep. a Thursday afternoon, <laughs> still not sort exactly of, live tweeting. <laughs> not, not quite, but you know, it's live. It was live for me. Uh, all right, well, let's get stuck into the news from the week. Uh, what, what have we got? Okay, so at the start of the week this week, uh, an article caught my eye in the Age, written by Agricultural Minister Barnaby Joyce. Um, the title of the article was "Ice Epidemic Brought Home." Uh, basically, it was an article where he had written about his experience of. His wife came across a death notice in the papers for a person that he'd known through his accountancy firm, and he was a bit curious because this was a young person, you know, that he'd known to be fairly healthy and all the rest of it. And he was like, well, what happened? So he rang around and he found out that she'd succumbed to uh, methamphetamine addiction. Um, so, yeah, he basically just wrote a, a, an article that was, you know, not coming from the point of view of anyone that that knew much about the problem, but just the kind of confusion and anguish that that can cause for people when they actually come in contact with, um, you know, the, the hard reality of addiction and its consequences. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought it was, um, I thought it was quite a quite a good little piece. You yeah, know? it's always um, always interesting to hear the uh, perspectives of people um, that that are that do feel an effect from um, from drugs, but a secondary effect, an effect through a family member or a friend or something like that. Um, but I think it's important because a lot of those people tend to forget they they want to tell the story of a user on behalf of a user, and they skew the story toward their own biases, and often that's um, towards that's, stigma. That's true. Yeah, yeah. And I did hear some criticism of that. For me, I thought it was praiseworthy just for the simple fact that it got the first thing that you need to do right when you talk about like changing the attitudes of people to drugs and that's thinking of drug users as people. Exactly. And exactly. that was the Very step important. that the, the agricultural minister had taken. Speaking so. of uh, uh, thinking of drug users as people, uh, the Korea Mail uh, this week uh, published a, um, a piece on Queensland police calling for an increase in search powers. Uh, Queensland police force apparently want to be able to strip search anybody without any uh, warrant or um, particular suspicion from what I can understand. I think uh, they, they've got a bit of a, a thing where they want to just be able to uh, strip search people willy-nilly based on, I don't know, you got some dreadlocks, uh, you got some funny looking teeth, uh, you're wearing a tie day t shirt. Uh, we're going to strip search you. We want to, you know, fill your balls up now. <laughs> yeah, I think that's kind of what the police will do. That's their, their agenda is to catch people that use drugs and, and arrest them. That's, that's their job. So I just think it's important when those things come up that the health professionals, the, you know, alcohol and other drug sector, and, and you know, people like us call them out on that and go, no, actually. Absolutely. We know that you want to do that, but you don't always get what you want. I think want. what worries me the most is in, in Queensland in particular, and I was up in Queensland uh, earlier this year for the um, Australasian Drug and Alcohol Strategy Conference, which was hosted by the Australian Federal Police and the um, uh, Queensland Police Force. Um, I, I just got this feeling from the, uh, from the Queensland Police that it was... Um, 
that they are actually lobbying. They, that the police force itself is lob- lobbying the, legisl- the, the the politicians for increases in laws. And it just seems to me that feels like a conflict of interest. That we're meant to have a separation between our legislature, our judiciary, and our executive force, the police force. And when the police force has in it a lobby arm that is lobbying for increases in laws, that seems like a, a contradiction of that separation of, of, of powers in a in a modern democracy. Anyway, that <laughs> it really upset me, but. <laughs> I yeah. hope I hope but, they don't get away with well, it, but there has been stranger things in Queensland. Yeah, when you first mentioned that, I thought you were going to talk about a, a different article that got some attention this week uh, of a, a young girl being arrested, uh, being charged, sorry, um, with uh, drug supply based on a text, uh, a oh. text message that she'd sent a friend. You didn't catch this one? I, no, I didn't see that one. Oh, I wish I'd put some more information on that one, actually. Um, <laughs> don't text so, each so, other about drugs. Is that the... Well, no, well, it was really interesting because she was charged, but the, the deal never actually went ahead. Head. Right. And what might be of interest to our listeners is that there's there's laws on the books across all different states and territories uh, that basically can allow for a charge to be made based on a promise of supply. You can get a very uh, – some yeah. of them they can charge you with trafficking. Uh, yeah. Here in Victoria, I think it's intent to supply or the, yeah. there's a different charge. Yeah, that sounds about right. right. Um, yeah, okay. yeah so that, that, that one caught a bit of attention and, and a bit of backlash too, I might add. Yeah, I imagine. <laughs> Uh, some big news from New South Wales this week. Uh, Mike Baird, the Premier, announced that the medical cannabis trials in New South Wales will be going ahead and that they've allocated $9 million for clinical trials, which will be conducted at the Calvary Matter Newcastle Hospital. The first part of the trial will involve 30 patients with the goal of discovering whether cannabis can be successfully inhaled as vapour and what its side effects are and what the frequency and size of the ideal dose will be. Um, this will be using a mix of, uh, in the article it reported cannabis leaf, but I'm assuming they mean cannabis flower and, um, <laughs> I imagine so. and a, another pharmaceutical product. So that's, that's probably one of the derived products from one uh, of the bigger pharmaceutical prob- companies. Probably something from, um, there's a uh, pharmaceutical company uh, operating in Australia, and I, I believe it's G, no, not GSK, um, uh, the name has escaped me, but there is one company. They're based in um, Israel, I believe, but they're an Australian company. A lot of uh, a lot of the best, the world's leading cannabis um, medical cannabis research comes out of Israel. So that's why a lot of these companies are based in uh, in Israel. Um, and they have, uh, I believe, it's Sativex. Yeah, that's uh, right. Which that's... is a synthetic cannabinoid that, that's used in in um, in uh, a medical setting. Yeah, this was actually uh, undergoing a trial sort of on the sly um, by the previous uh, state government here in Victoria in three hospitals that were trialling Sativex for, um, I think it was for the the, the same sort of thing, uh, nausea associated with chemotherapy. Mm. Um, and I, from what I understand, those uh, didn't turn out too well. So, so when you've got these um, these uh, uh, medicinal cannabinoids that we're talking about right now, like Sativex, what we're talking about is just one molecule of um, in in a cannabis plant. There's um, around a hundred, if not more, um, cannabinoids, separate different molecules that are in there, each with their slightly different effects, which makes it hard to pull apart. Um, you know, how do we get that medical um, effect here that we can use specifically here and that one there? And I believe that the Sativex trials, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but um, didn't turn out too well for decree, decreasing uh, nausea. It didn't beat smoke cannabis. Right. I, I, think, um, I think maybe that's something we can follow up on a future episode. I'm not too familiar with how the, the results of that panned out. I wasn't aware that the trials had finished. Maybe I'm maybe I'm thinking of another trial. Oh, it could well be. <laughs> There's a few of them out there. Um, Splinter in the Grass uh, was on recently, and they had a legal tent uh, set up to help people deal with uh, sniffer dog charges. Um, we we haven't talked about the Splinter in the Grass. I think we did, we did talk about Splinter in the Grass last yeah, week. Yeah. yeah, Sorry, I'm just uh, looking through my <laughs> my news feed and trying to figure out if we did. Um, it also got mentioned on uh, on ABC on the ABC program by uh, Detective Superintendent Tony Cook, who is the New South Wales. Um, big man over there, and um, I believe he he said it was a very successful operation, which would be interesting to hear his measures of success because they don't seem to match anybody else's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they definitely have a different measure of what success looks like. Um, just on the the medical cannabis uh, trials, uh, Lucy Haslam, who was the um, if you remember the the mother of Dan Haslam, who was a young man who contracted cancer and. Uh, discovered through other cancer sufferers that he he might be able to relieve some of the symptoms of his chemotherapy through cannabis. And she 
basically started the real charge for medical cannabis here in Australia um, by campaigning for for the laws to be changed. And she was a very powerful advocate as a uh, as a nurse. And I think her partner was a, a former police officer as well, Dan's father. So they came out as like really credible spokespeople for the the uh, for the movement and. Um, the Daily Telegraph reported a, a, an article by Mike Baird basically explaining that it was Dan and, and some other families that really changed his mind on the issue. It's really yeah. hard to to maintain an opposition in the face of a parent who's willing to do anything for their child. So Yeah, yeah and that, that can be the um, – uh, I mean, that's been the big shifter in, in the medical cannabis debate, just uh, parents um, getting involved and, and speaking directly, just those direct conversations with a few people, with politicians. Um, also something – this is just quickly something that I saw uh, this week in Beat magazine. Um, there was a full-page ad for uh, single-use drug tests, uh, urine, urine test, test kits, which you can now buy from your local pharmacy, apparently – um, uh, I, I'm curious to find out uh, how well those tests work and um, if they are similar to the police ones because it would be uh, mighty upsetting if somebody were to get that, have a negative, go to the police and get a positive uh, reading and then get in trouble for it. I wonder if there's compensation in there or something. Like, they probably don't make any particular claims of, uh, of uh, accuracy beyond what their marketing claims are. Yeah, I think that there's a bit of a... a race happening now with you know different people sometimes trying different drugs to avoid detection and the different testing regimes that are coming out uh to account for different substances so you know a bit of a bit of a chemical arms race in the um in the uh the, the realm of that sort of thing yeah there is definitely yeah um just one more quick article the federal ice task force has tabled their interim report at the coag meeting um, and they've called on all governments which have agreed to work with the task force to develop a national ice action strategy for agreement at the next COAG meeting on the basis of the following six areas for action. Focusing law enforcement actions, targeting primary prevention, improving access to early intervention treatment and support, supporting local communities to respond, improving tools for frontline workers and improving consolidation of research and data. So hmm. I maintain some hope that uh, some good will come out of this and it won't just all be funneled to, towards uh, more, more of the same law enforcement and poorly funded services. So. Exactly. Uh, this is in Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM uh, on digital and also streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Uh, do get in touch with us if you do have something to say, comment, complaint, uh, something that you'd like to contribute. Get in touch with us. Head to the 3CR website and jump onto the Encyclopedia program page. All of our contact details are there. Uh, we're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We have an email address, and uh, you can you can get in contact with us there. We're going to be speaking to uh, Doctor. Doctor Professor Doctor David Coldicott, uh, shortly uh, talking. He was uh, on the ABC program uh, recently, and he also spoke at the Novel Psy- Psychoactive Substances Seminar earlier this week, put on by Heart Reduction Victoria. So we'll get all up to date on that with Doctor David Coldicott soon. This is three CR.
That's Melbourne Glitch Hop duo Boyfriends with their song Kong. And they'll be playing uh, at Alice in Underland. It's an event coming up on Saturday the 8th of August at the Railway Hotel. And it looks to be a bit of uh, bit of fun. It is the EP launch for Cheshire Music. And it's going to be a lot of Glitch Hop. So if you do like Glitch Hop, look for Alice in Underland on Facebook. We'll post, a, post an event link and, um, and uh, head along. We'll be speaking to Dr. David Caldicott very soon, uh, but first semester. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am, digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. My name is Nick Wallace. We've got Ash, uh, a regular uh, in psychedelic contributor, also with us. And uh, we're joined now by um, Dr. David uh, Caldicott, who uh, is a clinical senior lecturer in the Faculty of Medicine at the Australian National University. Uh, He's also an adjunct associate professor at the University of Canberra and uh, piloted the Welsh Emergency Department Investigation of Novel Substances, or WEDINOS, project in the UK, which we'll um, hear a little bit more about uh, in a little bit. David, welcome to Encyclopedia. Pleasure to be so um, it's been a bit of a it's been a bit of a big week uh, for you this week. You were on uh, ABC Two on I believe it was Tuesday night. Yep. Uh, so how can you tell us a little bit about um, about how how it went from your perspective? Well, uh, from my perspective, I had a thoroughly good time. Um, it looks it like is, it. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's an interesting country that you have here uh, in that it's. Uh, People who are prepared to to get in a room and and talk about the science of drugs policy um, are few and far between. We live in a very soundbite sort of environment where um, uh, I think your your elected politicians are far happier to uh, deliver a a three-point catchy statement uh, to correspond media cycle than to have a substantive debate. Um, So um, it was it was very promising to be invited into that environment. Um, I think, uh, after it all, probably nobody was convinced away from their position, and uh, it, it probably merely whetted the appetite of people who are interested in seeing this debate in Australia. Yeah, I, I, I got that feeling from it. I just watched it, uh, I watched it a couple of days after the uh, live broadcast, so I missed out on the social media discussion, but that 
doesn't mean I haven't involved myself now, but um, uh, I, I felt like uh, Detective Superintendent Tony Cook, I believe, of the New South Wales Police Force. Uh, I've heard him speak about um, drug issues. In, in fact, I've heard him speak with you on drug issues before, and he's very dismissive um, and, and seems to be very fond of stating uh, what he thinks are facts, but I, I, for the life of me, I can't find where he gets half his figures. Uh, look, I think it's a style um, of of both policing and politics. I would preface all my, my comments by saying um, kudos to anybody who is prepared to go on record, stand up against, uh, you know, not myself included, but my colleagues, fairly formidable opposition. Um, and I think we shouldn't be too dismissive of what might be a style of debating that derives politics. It's not scientific and it's not medical and it isn't supported by the literature, but at least they're prepared to engage. And I think we should always be you know, cognizant and grateful for those people who are prepared to stand up. And of course, from a law perspective, um, you know, as I said to him on the night, uh, he's not making the laws. Um, he's enforcing them. He may even agree with them. But he's not making them. And the people that we need to be taking the debate um, are, in fact, the, the politicians themselves. Um, the, the police are, are merely the executors of political will. Um, they may be doing it more enthusiastically than they need to in, say, for example, sharp contradistinction to what's happening in Derbyshire in the UK at the moment, um, where you have uh, the police force there writing to Theresa May calling for a change in the law. Mm. It seems that in fact Australia is quite the uh, the opposite where you see in Queensland for example uh, the police calling for more powers to even strip search potential um, dealers of methamphetamine. So they're not without guilt but we shouldn't be too dismissive of them because they, at least they turned up. Exactly, exactly, and that's that's pretty important for uh, for a lot of these figures. That at least we have the public discussion because it's it's uh, barely happening at the moment. But I'm feeling like it's um starting to ramp up a little bit. And uh, Ash has got a question. Uh, no, I was just going to say we 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 covered that uh, the Queensland uh, thing at the the start of the program uh, with the police looking for more powers and um, you know just. I don't the, think- the, the interesting there's, there's way that they're a, acting as a lobby group, so, you know, as yeah, much no, as enforcing the law. Right. Of course, you know, you, you need to understand why that's the case. Um, you know, the people who globally um, benefit from the global war on drugs, GWAD, as it's sometimes referred to, um, are merely law enforcement, um, the dealers themselves, obviously, and, of course, large banks. Um, who find themselves able to um, move larger sums of money. There's some tremendous anecdotes about uh, American banks on the border with Mexico having to um, widen their teller uh, uh, openings so that they can uh, accept these vast deposits of uh, laundered money um, in physical form. Um, and, And so this is part of the reason why law enforcement has become so militarized in uh, the United States uh, with live vehicles and uh, semi-automatic weapons because their budget for counter um, narco-terrorism is vast. And if you can generate enough fear, enough of a moral panic about illicit drugs in Australia, you can greatly increase the policing budget, um, which serves the police on a number of different fronts, obviously. Yeah, exactly. And I actually heard a um, an anecdote that I'd like to uh, share, and I won't won't give names or specific details. But uh, earlier this uh, this week, a friend of mine uh, had her uh, had her door knocked on early in the morning, and the the police came in, and um, they wanted to search her house for uh, for drugs. Um, apparently, the only drugs they found was one pill, which uh, we I. I got to uh have a look at the um the warrant and the um and the uh the papers that were served to her and it's really strange because the warrant is uh blank and the um the papers say that she 
um, possessed and used methylamphetamine, which she never said that she had methamphetamine. But I get this feeling that because of this increased focus in Victoria on ICE, police are being told we need to go out and find ICE. There's, you know, 40 million or however much money's been thrown into the, uh, into policing ICE and we've got to save ICE and, you know, all the communities on ICE. There's an ICE epidemic that the police are almost uh, going out and they're, because they want to find it, they're going and saying, oh, we found it, even when that's not at all what's happened, which is going to make people have to jump through uh, judicial ho- uh, hoops when they get into court. Um, uh, and, you know, they need to get a lawyer and all sorts of things. So, yeah, I, I, uh, the police really do have an incentive in, in some uh, aspects to find certain things when there are these moral panics, like we arguably have now about ICE and there being an ICE epidemic. No doubt. I mean, I think um, that in many of them, uh, I'm not sure the people who we were debating with last night could be included, but I think many um, uh, people involved in the uh-huh. have a, a fairly in it that they are um, helping um, stop stop a, a health problem. And at some levels, they often are. Um, but when it starts rolling out of control, and becoming viral in popular media, I, I actually think, in my own belief, that um, it becomes part of the problem rather than part of the solution. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am, uh, digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. You're listening to In Psychedelia with uh, Nick and uh, Ash, and we're joined at the moment by uh, Dr David Caldicott, who uh, uh, was on uh, ABC2 talking about drugs the other day, and you're also presenting at a forum on uh, novel psychoactive substances in Melbourne, and I believe the ABC T-show was in Sydney. You, you've been jet-setting across the place. Double header, man. Double header. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, at the at the for at the, at the seminar, which uh, both Ash and I were at, you were um, you were talking rather passionately about how you got involved uh, with uh, with the with uh, uh, drug drug law and drug, drug policy um, uh, and harm reduction in the first place, and um, that a lot of that sort of culminated uh, about a decade ago with Wedenos. Can you tell us a bit about Wedenos? Well, Wedenos actually. Um, was the execution of a plan that um, was was built in Australia, in fact. Um, when I came out to Australia originally in 99, um, I, I really wasn't the sort of eva- evangelist that I get um, described as now. I, I personally don't see myself as an evangelist. I, I have a hard time listening to nonsense being spoken about drugs policy, and I feel obliged to pipe up about it. But I don't... When I went back to the United Kingdom um, uh-huh. in 2009 and 2012, I was very happy just raising a family. I, my services in terms of commenting or being a pundit on drugs policy weren't required because there are an abundance of people who were prepared to do that. Um, so um, I wasn't that interested in illicit drugs. I had been tutored by a very clever man, Henry, who was one of the original um, uh, toxicologists who studied MDMA, uh, really back in the day, even before it had become illegal. Um, and, and that was about my exposure um, to illicit drugs uh, at a technical level. I, I put my way through med school by being a bouncer, and so I <laughs> had seen quite a lot of um, uh, uh, illicit or, well, at the time, not even illicit uh, use. Um, when I came out to Australia, I had, it wasn't actually a, an area or arena of speciality. We did a little bit of work in the first few months when I came out to Australia um, on GHB and identified that, in fact, you could reverse the effects of GHB with a medicine called Pfizer-Stigmine. Now, um, actually, and, I, I, you, you mentioned that the other day, and I wanted to stop you there because I'm pretty yeah. interested in that. Is that something that's um, happening or even known about by many people? Can can that um, that uh, antagonist, I assume it is, be, uh, yeah. be... Can get it? Can people get it? Sure. Pfizer-Stigmine is an old, old drug. I don't think um, the general public could probably uh, get it. It's an extract um, from a, um, a plant called the Calabar bean. Uh, grown in Africa and was used for testing witches. Um, but in fact, um, we, we use it in medicine fairly infrequently, but it's still available as an antidote. It probably works with GHB specifically, 
And then all of a sudden, and we wrote this up, we, we identified um, it out of a paper out of Dunedin, of all places, mm-hmm. um, 30 years previously, where GHB was actually being used as an anesthetic agent. Um, so in a series of over 5,000 operations where they used GHB after the operation was over, they woke them up by giving them a shot of phytostigmine. So it seemed logical to try it in the illicit environment, and it worked very well. Unfortunately, um, when GHB was replaced by its analogs and 1,4-butane-diol, um, it really stopped working well because, of course, these products were sort of hovering around waiting to be converted by the body into GHB. So you had this sort of sump or well of product, like a slow release. And so a perfectly good antidote failed um, because um, the, uh, the drug changed just that little bit. So it works for a little while. And if somebody is actually overdosed on true real rather than any of the analogs, it should work very well for them. We published it in uh, Emergency Medicine. Yeah, that's that's um, quite interesting to hear. Thanks for uh, sharing that about it. And just uh, just for uh, if, if you're listening along at the moment and wondering what all these uh, particular drugs are, GHB you may have heard of before. You may have heard of uh, called G or Liquid Ecstasy. I believe it's also been called sometimes, um, along with a, a few silly names that I'm pretty sure only um, tabloid newspapers call them. Um, but at the moment, as far as uh, I understand from um, from what limited amount of research has been done on the market in Victoria, there pretty much is, is no GHB. So when people believe they have this as a party drug, it's more likely 1,4-B or GBL, which are those other two that you, uh, you mentioned there, uh, David. And we're, we're speaking to uh, Dr. David Coldicott at the moment on Encyclopedia on, uh, on 3CR. And you, you were saying that uh, about a decade ago, you were um, uh, doing some research projects, one, GHB being one of them, um, working toward uh, harm reduction, in, uh, in, in the festival scene? Yeah, in... Um, party in scene. Ad- we, um, we were just sort of going through these various things. I hadn't actually gone out into the field. I'd certainly been involved socially in in the UK, as a, and even before then. Um, Ireland, in those days, uh, was a very poor country, and if you wanted to get a job as a student, you would go to the States of the UK, and, of course, I would go to the, the UK, and I worked on building sites and pubs there, Spent my money um, dancing and partying, and at the time there were there were parties, big parties, which became known as raves. And so that's where I became familiar with the rave scene. It uh, when I when I came to Australia, it wasn't nearly as big, uh, hadn't really taken off. Um, uh, but I was familiar with it from the UK, um, and I had a vague interest in it socially. But as a medical person, you kind of distance yourself from that environment. Until I looked after a young man in August of 2001 um, who um, who passed away while um, we were looking after him, ostensibly having taken uh, what we thought was an amphetamine-like substance, maybe um, maybe MDMA or MDMA, we thought. Um, certainly meth wasn't that big in Adelaide at the time. Um, and when we looked at it closer, it turned out uh, to be... Um, to be something called paramethoxyamphetamine or PMA. Yeah. And that's that's sure. just just to jump in quickly, that's a drug that um has been implicated in um in various deaths across the world recently, um, when there have been deaths that have been uh, attributed to ecstasy or MDMA or Molly as it's the new term that's being thrown around. Um those deaths have um come from drugs that have been adulterated. So it was meant to be MDMA, a much safer drug than um PMA, which um from what I understand has a has a much um uh, lower threshold until people um, reach dangerous territory. Is that is that about right, David? There is absolutely no doubt. I mean, one of the great mythologies of modern drugs law and lore is that all illicits are equally dangerous. And of course, that's rubbish. That's uh, you could say that about uh, pharmaceutical drugs to the same state of accuracy. That's just nonsense. Um, MDMA actually, in terms of the numbers of people that it kills around the world globally um, uh, per annum is actually doesn't kill that many people at all. Um, whereas PMA, uh, certainly in the work that we did subsequently, at least 10% of people um, who present to hospital following a PMA ingestion 
uh, end up in an intensive care unit. Um, and there's not an awful lot of uh, illicit that does that. In fact, um, in many ways, um, it was a, a, an eye-opener for me. It was my one and only uh, a chance and occurrence to chat to uh, 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 Shulgin. Um, he, we contacted him because it was obviously in his um, his book, Pical. Um, and, uh, and he was fascinated uh, at the interest that uh, Australians seemed to have in it. So was this, were people actually seeking out PMA? Did you do some market research and find that people were actually seeking out this drug rather than MDMA? Or were they being sold um, what they thought was MDMA and it was PMA? Interesting at the time, um, it, within this particular phase, there were definitely people seeking it out. They uh, differentiated it from MDMA. Um, the consumption of it, they described as something cool, um, when, when they used it. Um, and certainly the young lad um, who died quite clearly had uh, an interest in it and had, in fact, um, on one of the, uh, on the, on the bulletin boards that we all sort of look at, had extolled its virtues. Um, while at the same time acknowledging that getting the dose right was difficult, Right. Um, he's seeking this experience. Yeah. Um, so, and that's why it was important, I think, you know, to write something about it um, for the benefit of the consumers to say, come on now, lads, this is, this is terrible. And, and then at the time, uh, it got me to thinking, um, well, what else can we do? How, how can we help? In the same way, for example, as needle syringe programs and uh, injecting rooms and clean needles are helping the, the IV or parenteral uh, drug users. What is there out there to help um, the, um, the, uh, the party drug users? Mainstream party drugs, yeah. I mean, I'm those to call them that, um, but the party drug consumer from getting harmed. That, that in itself is frequently misrepresented, you know, um, that, you know, the work trying to do is trying to facilitate drugs assumption and you know that's just a non sequitur what we're trying to do is we're trying to stop young people from dying while they go through that phase of their life um, where people are more likely to consume drugs um, and Oh, ahead, no. oh, sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say we're speaking with uh, Dr. David Caldicott on 3CR. This is in Psychedelia, uh, and we're just talking uh, about um, the different sorts of drugs that were out there uh, 10 years ago, and PMA and MDMA, PMA being a, a sort of a uh, similar drug to MDMA, but um, one that has far greater risks associated with it because, as David said earlier, not not all drugs are quite created equal and some are far more dangerous than others. And this, this sort of prompted you to start to get out into the into the party scene to provide this education? Was that uh, where this led? Well, firstly, I think we, we really wanted to get a hand. I mean, this is the, the, the big problem when you're doing research on, on communities such as this is that um, it's very easy to do, say, for example, a household survey or to um, conduct interviews with people who are in rehab uh, who have problems. But for the vast majority of people in the party scene, these are technically described as functional drug users. These are people who are holding down a day job, um, using drugs probably infrequently, um, and, and occasionally using drugs to improve their experience of life. Um, and to be perfectly honest, they, they couldn't give a shit um, what anybody uh, was going to tell them about drugs. were completely disengaged from all the various mess, me, uh, messages from John Howard's uh, um, Tough on Drugs policy. And they were... Um, it was, it, we started with questionnaires and asked them who they trusted for their information on, on drugs. And in, in South Australia at the time, they trusted the cops more than they trusted uh, government in, in commercials. Um, and I, I've never come across data like that before. That's so these were people, yeah, they just not ping anywhere. It was a substantial group of affluent young people who were you know, semi-professionals. And we just weren't getting any data about how and why and what they were using and when. Um, and so... We looked globally and 
I had never heard of it before, even. Uh, uh, I'd never seen it in the UK, but pill testing was something that was going on in mainstream Europe for quite some time. And it seemed very obvious that that would be a useful way to engage with people, um, while at the same time, you know, maybe getting them to modify their behavior and also getting some useful toxicological information about what actually was on the street. So, so by, um, by pill testing, you don't mean get uh, get Benny down and uh, see how many pingers he can eat till he passes <laughs> out. That's it's a different sort of uh, different sort of drug testing, isn't it? No, no, it's uh, it's definitely not biological. Um, so, at the time, all we had at our disposal really very old type tests. So, what people often call as colorimetric tests, tests that change color um, according to whatever chemicals you put. So this. These, for anyone who's um, probably done high school chemistry, this is these um, these tests where you got the two chemicals and you put put one in the other one and then different colour and and these can be used to uh, probably many people are familiar with our pH test because that's a pretty basic one and that's uh, is that a basic colour colour metric test is that a fair fair uh, comparison? That's exactly the principle. These the specific tests like Marquee and Mandolin um, are tests which date probably at least 100 years uh, from the original descriptions. Um, and they're designed as they identify quaternary amines or certain chemical groups which actually happen to be in certain illicit drugs these days. And so um, the police, say, for example, use colorimetric testing on when they're doing a drugs bust to identify uh, powders to see if there's any chance that they could be illicit drugs. They're very primitive. Uh, they can be misleading. But at the time, um, it was all that we had to go on. Um, so we worked with a group called Enlighten, uh, and who I think were affiliated to the Blue Light organization, and um, and used pill testing as almost like a, uh, a flame for moths to drag people towards our little staff to come and chat to us about what they were doing and, and let us chat to them about ways that they might want to think about um, how they were using drugs in order not to have to plug up my emergency department. And this is this is very similar to the um, uh, uh, current model uh, operating in Victoria um, with harm reduction Victoria dance wires, and it was formerly known as Rave Safe for any uh, older party goers uh, in the in the <laughs> in the uh, audience this evening or oh, this yeah, afternoon. Yeah. I remember those days. I remember seeing the Rave Safe guys at the uh, exhibition building New Year's Eve. The little stand down the back, and and the intention of the program is to uh, uh, give people uh, good sound advice. People that are all have already decided to take drugs, so you're not there as an interventionist um, approach. You're there to provide good quality information, so that if they, whatever decision they're going to make, uh, it'll be one that uh, you know hopefully takes takes into consideration any uh, any negative health uh, consequences that could happen, and and anything else out there, any other good information that's out there. It was um, it was very interesting for us. Um, I think people were a little bit surprised when they saw us originally um, at these parties. So they were the Enchanted Forest parties uh, in, uh, in South Australia. They had a big summer party every year and a slightly smaller winter one, which was usually held in a warehouse around Adelaide. Um, and uh, so I think for the first little while, people thought that we might something uh, but eventually they came forward after a while it was actually very difficult um, to um, control the uh, the quantity of people who were pressing in around to see what was going on um, and we were bringing more and more volunteers to come and do surveys and to chat to people about ways of staying safe and what we showed very clearly um, from the program is that when people were given the opportunity to test their pills their behavior dramatically. So when they were able to find out what was within their pills, it was not what they thought it was or what they wanted, which was almost at the time uniformly MDMA. That's what people were looking for. Some people like ketamine, but that was most looking for in their pills. They began to make decisions about, uh, in fact, not taking the pill or binning the pill. And so more than half of the people who had their pills uh, actually did other than take the pill. Um, and and it wasn't all necessarily brilliant. Uh, 5%, for example, in one city. 
<laughs> especially if they're going to hopefully they're not going to lie about its contents um in that yeah. process oh, well. this is something that needed more work to be done um but you know when you are, are engaged at that level and chatting at that level then as you then to subsequently get in there and provide a message about you know what the origins of mdma the origins of the rave scene that sort of old school that you and I know too well of peace, love, understanding and respect, that wouldn't be tolerated. That's not what this is about. And, um, you know, I, I believe that there are messages that could be given to the community in that environment which would discourage that practice as, you know, once it was made explicit that, that that wasn't a good thing to do. So we demonstrated that we could, we could touch people um, and identify who they were. We could get them to trust us. We could modify their behaviors while at the same time generating vast amounts of data about the sort of areas of consumption that other surveys just, just weren't reaching. I think um, one of the things that I found interesting at the forum on Tuesday was um, the, the bar graph that you put up over the course of the time you were doing these interviews. And the thing that you pointed out that I thought was quite profound was how many people had changed from saying that they would take a pill anyway, even if they didn't know what was in it, to that just dropping off to, to basically nobody saying that they would take it anyway, just from your presence being in the club. A series of 460 um, after 18 months of, of well, admittedly fairly intensive interaction with what is, as you, you both will understand, often the, the, the same suspects, the same culprits, the people who go to the a given party are are committed to that party. A lot of people go to the same party, or you know, put their parties around Australia, like Rainbow Serpent or Burning Seed or any of these things. People like certain parties and they stay with them. And we see familiar faces over time and recognize people, and people will come back to us and, and seek us out. And that relationship um, allowed us to follow people as a cohort. And as you quite correctly um, uh, say period of time, we, we could very easily demonstrate that people's behavior were changing merely by us um, having chats um, and interacting. And, uh, and I think this is something um, that has been, um, that effect has been minimized by people who are opposed um, to pill testing um, and, and denied and lied about. Um, but if you are honest and you accept that in any society, regardless of um, people are going to consume drugs, mm. uh, then you need to accept that um, you have to have a tiered uh, response, the, the broad base of which is you're terribly naughty if you use drugs hell, and you can use that in primary school, um, all the way to you know the people who are uh, virally loaded and intravenously using drugs to say this is how we can help you with um, your your use of IV drugs while you have HIV. Exactly. Um, and that's appropriate tiered approach. Exactly. In you can't have a message that's just generic for everyone because everyone's got a different, at a different point in life and a different level of knowledge. Of um, just say no. Exactly. And that is a, an ab absurd um, public health message. Um, it's oversimplification. That would be hilarious if it wasn't so tragic. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Uh, this is in Psychedelia. We're speaking to Dr. David Coldicott. Uh, we've got to wrap it up soon, nearly the end of the show. Uh, but David, uh, before before you go, uh, so it's 10 years later, obviously we have much uh, more drugs on the market now just because of, a, I think it's a convergence of technology and price has just made it possible for people to quickly design new molecules, get them uh, manufactured somewhere and get them sent for relative cheap so well, alphabet soup of drugs let's not forget the role of prohibition in all of this as well exactly well um, prohibition yeah. has uh, created the incentive in the market for these new drugs to be uh, pushed out there in the first place because of the way the drug legislation works uh, a new drug that's not specifically regulated but under um, under the uh, uh, drug prohibition schedules is not an illegal substance and that's where a lot of this has happened there's absolutely no doubt in my mind from pure toxicological um, you know, and this is 
undeniable, unequivocal, uh, irrefutable, um, even from our politi- political and law enforcement colleagues, that the, the, the drugs that have been designed to replace originals, like, for example, um, bush-grown cannabis, um, are clearly far more dangerous. These are um, the, and this synthetic the cannabis irony. type things. Exactly. Um, and this is the absolute irony um, that I think Arthur referred to, um, President Jimmy Carter referred to, is that we have now got to a stage where the interventions that we are applying to deal with illicit drugs in society are causing more harm than the actual drug. And that has just got to stop. So what's in the immediate future for um, for for changing this situation, especially uh, from from your perspective, David? What what can be done in the next you know one to one to three years, sort of really right now? What what can we change? Well, I think there are a number of options. I think um, our our colleagues who have been firmly committed to prohibition um, over the last say fifty years need to be gently. Um, educators about you know where this idea is wrong. Um, my daughters are um, very young and very into uh, a film, for example, called Cinderella. Oh yes, um, which you know, <laughs> I know the one. You've got a <laughs> little one now. It's all ahead of you, man. Oh right. Um, <laughs> the movies, the movies will come. Um, but in that movie, Cinderella is admonished and advised um, to show courage. To be, and whereas twenty years ago I might have been um, the, the sort of semi-nude man carrying the banner over the bodies of my opponents, um, that that never achieved anything. That never gets anywhere. And I think people need to help our political colleagues out of the corner in which they've painted themselves. Um, it is very difficult to get out of this for them because it's what they've been crapping on about for so long. And we need to provide... Throw them a rope, or maybe throw them uh, a hair from that long girl uh, fairy tale. I'm getting my fairy tales mixed up now, but um, you get the metaphor. You're exactly right. Um, And and rather than watch them wallow comfort, help them to help themselves, encourage the politicians, for example, who are um, embracing this new knowledge... Because for many people, it's nearly 100 years of sheer propaganda about the evils of drug use. There is no doubt that um, any substance that is used for non-medicinal purposes, for altering your perception of reality, can cause harm. We know that from alcohol. Tobacco, in its original, used for shamanic purposes. Um, So all of these drugs are dangerous. There's no doubt about that. But it's a public health issue. It's not a law enforcement issue. And I think we are seeing with the changing of laws in the U.S., hopefully, beginning of a change in the world paradigm. I would love to see um, Australia considering a Portuguese-type model where all of drug use is uh, uh, decriminalized and we put all of the health and, and basically sweep the rug out from underneath the enormous budget being wasted in law enforcement. And just before you go, um, I wanted to share uh, just six points that uh, EGA, which is Entheogenesis Australis, they've been putting on psychedelic conferences in uh, Victoria for over 10 years now. They had their 10th birthday a couple of years back. And the Twitter uh, account, twitter.com forward slash EGA policy, uh, just shared six things. Um, and this is just to help anyone uh, that's listening that does want to get involved with, uh, with, with getting drug law reform happening. Uh, and these are, the, these are the six points. Number one, it's too easy to tell brave young people who talk about their drug use that they've been lucky up until now and that their hair looks stupid or they sound up themselves. And this was commenting on uh, some of the comments from the ABC2 show the other day. Uh, Number two, one anecdote about erect drug-using life trumps hundreds of anecdotes about good times or thriving older trippers. Keep that in mind because those are the stories that end up in uh, in the media. But if you think strategically, you can find ways to engage people in different ways. 
Number three, similarly, ex-users on a mission to broadcast their regrets, Trump happy trippers, especially young happy trippers and other sorts of drug users, um, which we definitely saw demonstrated on the ABC2 show the other day. Uh, Number four, a lot of people don't distinguish between drug use, drug abuse, and addiction. And uh, that is a very common problem that we've got at the beating heart of drug policy uh, and, and law reform more broadly. Number five, a lot of people don't understand how prohibition causes real harms, uh, variable quality, dose, and even identity of products, which we were just talking about, um, funding violent criminals, potentially, and corruption, bloating the police and prison industries who uh, may discriminate uh, with these laws because they are very easy to discriminate uh, when, when policing them, and so on. And number six, both sides of the polarised debate, and this is our major problem in Australia at the moment, seem overconfident, more eager to talk than to listen and not knowing what they don't know. And I I see that a lot amongst my um, uh, comrades, drug law reform comrades. Um, There are a lot of people who are very passionate about wanting to change the current drug laws because they might have been harmed by by prohibition. They might have a, 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 a charge in their history that's affected their ability to work in the future. They might have felt mishandled by police or they might just feel that it's genuinely unfair because they weren't, they didn't feel they, they were doing something harmful, but by the same token, there are people on the other side who feel equally as passionate, and often we end up with this beating heads against the wall thing, and nobody ends up uh, agreeing on everybody on anything, and everybody goes home just as angry as they were at the start. I think a degree of kindness, a uh, degree of humour, and when the humour um, doesn't work, you can sharpen it into satire. Um, you know, so I think people who are being ridiculous deserve to be teased. Um, But first and foremost, we should be kind with people who probably actually don't have the resources to understand what we're telling them. We need to say things to people um, with little words. Dr. David Calicott, thanks for uh, joining us on In Psychedelia this afternoon. Anytime. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am, digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. This might be all about we've uh, got time for. Don't forget to jump onto the website, 3cr.org.au, and follow the program pages to Encyclopedia. You can get in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter, and also via email there if you have any comments, complaints, contributions, or uh, anything else that you'd like to send through. And we'll be back same time next week, 2 o'clock on Sunday afternoon. This is in Psychedelia. We're covering the complex intersection between psychoactive substances and society. There's a lot of intersections that we're yet to cover, and I'm sure we'll get to those ones. Queering the Air is up next on 3CR, and uh, don't forget to get in touch with us. 3cr.org.au forward slash in Psychedelia. You've been listening to Encyclopedia, a 3CR community radio podcast. For more information on anything you've heard in this program, head along to 3cr.org.au and follow the links to the Encyclopedia program page.